Menace to Society, Part 2. We pick up where we left off on the last episode, with two of the men in the car having been arrested. One of them gives us the name of the third man in the car the night of the attempted abduction, and we set out to track him down. Through several hours of investigation, we determined that the front passenger lives with his mother up in East Harlem in the 25th Precinct area. I then run a rap sheet or a criminal history check on this individual and find that he has done time for robbery and weapons possession in the past. I contact Detective Kaprowski, who is one of the arresting officers from a previous arrest, who is now a detective in the 2-5 Precinct. He informs me that The subject is a well-known gang member and criminal from East Harlem. And then on two occasions, while the detective and his partner were working in plain clothes, they had come into contact with him. One time they had arrested him for a robbery where he had choked a man from behind in the lobby of a building. And another time, he was shooting a gun off on First Avenue. Luckily, no one was injured during that incident. I asked the detective to speak to his informants and keep an eye out for this guy and I tell him I am looking to arrest him for an attempted kidnapping. He wholeheartedly agrees. I then make up wanted posters from the 1-800-TIPS program, and we basically wallpaper the housing project area where he lives and hangs out, as well as the central booking arrest facilities in Harlem and downtown in the Tombs. I also send out the wanted posters to all 75 precincts in the five boroughs of New York City. A few days later, the Housing Bureau police officer who was manning the video surveillance system at the housing project where the fugitive lives calls me and he says that he sees the individual from the wanted poster on the elevator camera in his mother's building. He feels he is still there now. Detective Ed Roos and I travel lights and sirens from the East Village weaving in and out of heavy traffic all the way up to East Harlem making it with no accidents in less than 10 minutes. As we pull up in front of the projects, we see a man fitting the description. We run up to him with our guns drawn, saying, police don't move, and place him against the wall. The man starts yelling, what are you stopping me for? What are you stopping me for? We tell him to look at us, and we aren't quite sure if it is our fugitive or not. The last mugshot we have of him is a few years old. The mail shows us some legitimate ID that states he is not the fugitive. He starts to get more upset and we explain to him we are looking for someone for a serious crime. At this point, an older woman sitting on a bench we didn't notice tells the man we have stopped, It's okay, it's okay, you favor my son. That's why they stopped you, you favor my son. She then says, Detectives, that's not my son. Once the man realizes who we were looking for, he tells us, That's okay, I understand. He obviously knows the reputation of her son. We walk over to the fugitive's mother, who we have spoken to before, and remind her that she needs to have her son turn himself in. She states she has not spoken to him and has no idea where he is. We start getting calls to our tip line from the wanted posters that have been placed up in the projects where the fugitive lived, and also from a precinct in Queens, New York. In regards to the precinct in Queens, a retired detective from the 23rd Precinct East Harlem, the precinct directly south from where the fugitive lives, 
calls me and tells me he saw the poster and that several years ago he was investigating a triple. To explain, a triple in detective slang is a murder case where three victims are killed in the same incident. He then says that my fugitive was one of the main suspects in that case. He believes that the fugitive had duct taped the victims during a home invasion, but did not have evidence that he was the actual shooter in that case. It could have been one of his accomplices. The district attorney did not go forward with the case against my fugitive at that time because he felt they did not have enough evidence. That's the first case I hear of that the fugitive most likely was guilty of extreme violence and has gotten away with it. The other call I receive is from my friend, the assistant district attorney, Jordan Arnold, who says a prisoner has seen the wanted poster and has information he wants to give us. Jordan sets up a meeting with the prisoner and I speak to him at length regarding the fugitive. The prisoner says that he is from the same neighborhood as the fugitive and that many people in his neighborhood know and are afraid of him. He says my fugitive is a gang member and has done time for rape. Now I know that the fugitive has not done time for a rape. It is not on his rap sheet. So I asked the prisoner to explain in more detail what he knows about the rape. The prisoner states that the fugitive had cornered two girls from the neighborhood in an elevator on First Avenue and had pointed a gun at them and sexually attacked them. The prisoner assumed that when the fugitive went upstate to prison, it was for that situation. After speaking to the prisoner, I conduct some research and look for old rape cases from the building that the prisoner told me about. I find the report for the incident. The two females had gotten into the elevator and were confronted by a masked man with a gun, and he had sexually attacked them and robbed them. No one was ever arrested for that attack. My fugitive had actually gone upstate back then to prison for a robbery on a man in an elevator in a different building. This is now the second violent crime I find that the fugitive is most likely guilty of and has gotten away with. Another disturbing incident the prisoner informs me about was an incident where the fugitive and a friend of his took a young man from the neighborhood that was considered a, quote, square, it's not a street smart type of guy, up on a roof of a building and sexually attack him. He was never arrested for that incident, but many in the neighborhood knew he had done it. Neither the victim nor anyone else wanted to inform on this fugitive due to his violent reputation. Extreme violence case number three that we now know of, and again, the fugitive has not been prosecuted for it. In regards to the two young women in the elevator case, I am having some disagreements with the two detectives from the Special Victims DNA Unit and an Assistant DA from the Sex Crimes Unit. It is determined by the Assistant DA that the case has passed the statute of limitations and could not be pursued. I then tell the Special Victims Unit's detectives and the Assistant DA from Sex Crimes that I have connected this fugitive to a case and from that case I have found a pattern. A pattern in detective slang is where multiple crimes have been committed and the evidence, or MO, modus operandi, points to the same suspects. A detective at the time of these incidents had linked the unknown suspect to three other sexual attacks inside elevators in the area of East Harlem, all against women. 
one woman had actually been a senior citizen. Once again, the assistant DA tells me that the statute of limitations had expired and there's nothing we can do to pursue these cases. As I'm talking with Ed Roos and Jordan Arnold, we all agree we need to get this guy. He's gotten away with perpetrating way too much violence in his life already. There are so many innocent victims who were never able to get justice for what he has done to them. And while our victim was able to get away from him that night and not be sexually assaulted, it's pretty obvious there will be more victims in the future if we don't stop him and put him in prison. I look at Eddie Roos and he says to me, with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, this guy is a menace to society. We had recently learned with the help of ADA Jordan Arnold that the fugitive has a sister in Groton, Connecticut, and we have reason to believe that the fugitive is possibly up there. So we decide to drive up to Connecticut. After speaking to a friend of the fugitive's sister, the friend tells us that he has left the area, but has been there. She also says that while he was there in the area, he had raped a woman who has a drug problem who lives down the block from her. We speak to the local police, give them our wanted poster, and ask them to contact us if they get any new information. We tell them about the sexual attack of the woman in their town, but they say no one has reported it. Once again, our fugitive is getting away with another violent attack. We are disappointed that we don't find him there, but we aren't giving up. We return to Manhattan and get back to work. Between evidence I find and further evidence that Assistant DA Jordan Arnold comes up with, we both connect the fugitive to the Atlanta, Georgia area. I speak to the interim commanding officer at the 9th Precinct Detective Squad, Jimmy Duke, and brief him on our new information. He says, call headquarters and set the trip up. Go find him. I then contact the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, also known as the GBI. They are extremely helpful. Tell me to give them a call as soon as we get to Georgia. Eddie Roos and I get clearance from the Chief of Detectives Office to go to Georgia. And we also get permission to take our handguns on the plane to Georgia with us. I am carrying my 9mm Glock, and Eddie also has a 9mm with him. After arriving in Georgia, we travel to a few locations with the GBI, but we are unsuccessful. Upon arriving at one of the local police stations with one of the GBI investigators, we meet the chief, a big man with a deep southern drawl. He says he may have heard something about someone in the area from New York. He has to check with one of his best patrol officers. When the officer arrives and we describe the fugitive to him, the chief says, you know, the New York boy you have been telling me about. The officer responds, oh yeah, that New York boy. He has been causing havoc down here for the locals. I think he has been robbing the local drug dealers. He then calls an informant he has in front of us and the one-sided conversation we hear goes down like this. Hey, you know that New York boy that is causing trouble down here? Yeah. He then says the fugitive's first name, and we say, that's him. As a couple of New Yorkers, we were a little surprised when the chief said the word boy. 
but the patrol officer was actually African-American, and he was using the term also. I guess it's a southern thing. He asks where he was, and then he tells us, I know where he is. We were very excited and were pumped that we may have found him. The GBI investigator then calls for backup, and we head over towards Warm Springs, Georgia, also known as the Southern White House for FDR. He would bathe in the springs to ease the pain from his polio. Starting route to Warm Springs. We meet with the backup team from GBI at a parking area on the side of a country road. Eddie Roos and I are dressed in our NYPD Detective Bureau usual attire, suits. The GBI investigators are dressed casually, but then start donning tactical gear, heavy bullet-resistant vests, shotguns, and assault-style rifles. Eddie and I check our pistols to make sure they were still on our hips. We both look at each other like, okay, these guys are serious. One GBI agent says to me, I hope you don't need this guy for information because if he pulls a gun or shoots at us, we aren't taking any chances. I think about all the innocent people the fugitive has hurt and terrorized, and I said something like, if he's stupid enough to do that, then we do whatever we have to do. The supervisor from the GBI approaches us. Hey, since you boys, see there it is again, have a rental car, and it doesn't look like an unmarked police car, why don't you take one of my guys and do a recon on the house and come back and we will set up a tactical plan. We agree and proceed to the house. As we are driving down the bumpy country road with only a few homes here and there, we notice a home in the distance on our right. The GBI agent in the back seat says, that's probably the house. As we get closer, the front door opens and a male exits the residence. He starts walking across the road. I look at him closely. It's him. He asks me if I want to call backup and wait or call backup and get him now. I say, let's get him. The agent tells the backup team to move in. And as Eddie Roos pulls the car closer to the subject, I can feel my heart pounding. We exit the vehicle, pull our pistols and yell, Don't move, police! The fugitive looks at us and I can tell he was thinking about what his move would be. I point my gun at him knowing that if he makes a move to his waistband, this could get bad really fast. Then I hear the agent behind me say, Don't move, boy! Get on the ground! Out of the corner of my eye, I see the agent walking up beside me with an M4 rifle pointed right at the fugitive. The fugitive looks like he's thinking about the possible actions he can take for another few seconds, but then he gets on his knees. I run up behind him and push him to the ground. He starts to resist and I get a little rougher with him and say, put your fucking hands behind your back. At this point, he relaxes, turns his head towards me and says, oh fuck, you're from New York. I guess my accent gave me away. He gives up and lets me cuff him. He knows it's over. Months on the run. He's going back to prison in New York. After speaking to the woman he is living with, she tells us he is out of control and robbing people. I ask her if he has a gun. She says yes, it's in the freezer. 
I leave that up to the Georgia cops to run ballistic reports and see if he has used that gun in any reported crimes. After a bunch of deep breaths, high fives, and handshaking, we drive back to the GBI offices. We question him, and he admits that he had been in the car during the attempted abduction. But he blames the entire incident on the male that had been in the back seat, the one that we previously arrested in the barbershop. He gives us his name and even tells us about a rape that that guy had done in the Metro North housing projects up in East Harlem. He states that the guy had told him in that case that he had bit the girl in the lip while he raped her. That would be a good part of the description of the case to give to the special victims detectives once we got back to New York. They then take us to the county jail. And let me tell you, they are very organized there. They have the fugitive fingerprinted, photographed, and dressed in an orange jumpsuit in about 15 minutes. That would have taken hours at one of our jails in New York City. We meet the sheriff. He's a friendly man who tells us he has already called the judge and he is on his way over to do the extradition hearing. Within a half an hour, the judge shows up and we have the extradition hearing done in five minutes. The fugitive agrees to go back to New York and we thank the judge. Technically, the fugitive is wanted on a warrant for absconding parole in New York. He is on parole for a robbery offense and has not reported to his parole officer in months. We call New York State Parole and they dispatch their fugitive squad to pick him up and bring him back to Manhattan. As soon as we get back to New York City and meet with Jordan Arnold, we proceed with some court hearings and paperwork. It is then time to formally arrest the fugitive for the attack on my victim. I go with Jose Martin down to the tombs to fingerprint him regarding the arrest, but he refuses to be printed. At one point, I feel we are all going to be in a brawl over the issue. Even though part of me wants to lose it and give him a beating for what he's done to my victim and all the other victims, I know that I have to remain professional, and so we put him back in the cell. I go upstairs in the courthouse to find Mike Wigdor, who is a lot bigger than myself and Jose. He has gotten orders from judges to force print criminals in the past. That judge's order would basically let us physically restrain the prisoner against his will and forcibly fingerprint him. By the time Mike and I go down into the tombs, Jose has somehow talked him into being printed, and that issue is resolved. I'm pretty sure he told him that we had gone to the judge and were going to get a print order to force him to do it. Months later, after the court case is finished, the fugitive, now a prisoner, is found guilty of attempted kidnapping and sentenced to 10 to 15 years in state prison. That will be added to whatever he owes on his parole for his past crimes. I personally don't feel that's a strong enough sentence for what he has done. Or maybe I'm just thinking of all the victims who never got their justice for what he had done to them. His accomplice in the crime pleads guilty and is also sentenced to prison time. The driver is sentenced to felony probation based on his cooperation. Thanks to the bravery and quick wits of two women, friends who hadn't seen each other in a while and had just wanted to go out and grab a drink, catch up and hear some music, 
a serial predator was taken off the streets for 14 years. How many people were saved from horrible attacks, we don't know, but I'm sure there would have been many. Again, because of these heroic women, and also thanks to the woman in the window and the woman passenger and taxi driver who didn't look the other way and interrupted the kidnapping, this all ended what could have been a horrible attack and then several more in the future. We have a recent update regarding the predator, who was the main attacker in this case. In 2017, less than one year after being released from 14 years of prison, late one night, the convict followed a woman home from a grocery store in his own neighborhood of East Harlem and violently pushed her into her apartment and choked her till she almost lost consciousness. The convict may have been spooked by some neighbors in the building and fled the scene after robbing the woman. The police from the 25th Precinct investigated and identified the convict. Detective Brian McCarthy from the Manhattan Robbery Squad arrested him for burglary and robbery. He is currently awaiting sentencing after being convicted after a trial that was prosecuted by Manhattan Assistant DA Zachary Weintraub. He has been designated by New York state law to be a mandatory, violent, persistent felon. And because of that is now facing at least 20 or 25 years to life on these new charges. Menace to society. Thank you for listening to Perpetrator, Episode 1, Menace to Society. I'm your host, Scott Prendergast, former NYPD detective, now private investigator and president of Cornelius Investigations in New York City. Stay tuned for the next episode of Perpetrator. Heroines will be another one of my true crime stories based on my experiences in the NYPD. Again, this episode will deal with brave women who helped prevent what could have been a horrible tragedy.